Again, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Welcome to the second service. Maybe you didn't realize this, but uh, this is the lucky service this week because uh, power went off without us knowing this weekend, and it was very hot in here first service. The, we went back, and it was like 76 degrees, blinking. Set date and time. Set date and time. So it's nice and cool in here. So congrats on coming to the not hot, humid service. Anyway, my name is Spencer. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Usually the other pastor, Chris, uh, he does most of our preaching, but about once a month, myself or another one of the elders uh, gets a chance to preach. So I'm up here this morning. Wanted to let you, let you know a little bit about myself uh, as it pertains to our, our sermon today. I am a pretty forgetful person, and I, I, I don't have a very good uh, short-term memory. I'm often losing my keys losing my wallet, losing my, my sunglasses, things like that. Thankfully, never lost my kid yet. Uh, I'm also pretty bad at remembering people's names. I often forget people's names, um, dates, things like that, although I do remember uh, my wife's birthday and our anniversary. Remember those. Um, so it might, it might just be because I'm getting older. That's why I'm less uh, or more forgetful, have, have worse of a short-term memory might be because I'm, I'm getting older. I actually had a really painful emotional, or a painfully emotional week. This week, I found uh, my very first gray hair. And so, uh, it was in my beard, the snow beard this week. So, I'm feeling better now. Um, so, maybe it's age, or maybe it's just human nature. Uh, I'm, not just, I'm not just forgetful in small things, but also in uh, larger things. I'm pretty bad at remembering uh, larger things as well, but maybe it's just human nature. Maybe, maybe you feel the same way in some of these things. I think about times when I'm feeling sick. Maybe I've got food poisoning or the flu, and I'm just lying there in bed, miserable, just waiting and hoping and wishing that I could do just normal things. I'm, I'm longing for being able to just walk and go outside and be in the sunshine or, or eat or just do things without feeling completely miserable. But just a few days after I start feeling better, maybe even a few hours after I get better, I'm already forgetting the miserable state I was in and how much I long for these just everyday things. Or maybe, uh, maybe you are like this as well. So my, my family, my, my wife and my son, the summer went on a short uh, mini vacation over, over a weekend to visit uh, her family. And saying goodbye was really hard, and I just really missed them. Having an empty house was really tough. Uh, looking at their pictures or having a short phone call was really tough. And I really missed them so much. I just longed for them to be back in my presence, to be able to hold my son, to talk with my wife, things like that. But then again, as soon as they came back, within just hours, I'm sure I was already getting annoyed with my son or, or wishing I could just have an hour of alone time. And a wise man once said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? So I think maybe, maybe some of you feel that same way. You're, we're, we're not that great as humans at remembering things. We forget a sad, sorry, painful state that we once were in. We forget about it real quick when life starts to get better. And God, God knows humanity. He knows that we are forgetful people, especially in our sin, especially in our fallen nature. So all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus, or God is having his people set up holidays, festivals, celebrations, setting up pillars so that they remember the great things that he has done for them. Because he knows how forgetful of a people that they are in us as well. One of those reminders that God gave his people was the Passover celebration and uh, the Passover feast. So this was one of the greatest events in all of Israel's history where God saved his people out of slavery and out of oppression and out of, out of uh, death underneath Pharaoh in Egypt. And he brought them out of that into the promised land, into this promised prosperity and, and uh, land with him as their God. And today we're going to see that theme again and again of, of, of now Jesus taking uh, a feast a meal that was a remembrance, and he's now going to change it, recreate it, reimagine it, and institute it into something that his church is going to do again and again and again to remember something even greater 
than the Passover, even greater than the greatest salvation event that happened for God's people in the Old Testament. So if you've been around for Hiawatha for a while, you've noticed that we are, uh, we've been in a, in a sermon series in the book of Matthew. And so Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples who have seen uh, Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his, his teachings, his miracles, his healings. And uh, we are very near the end of the book. We're very near the climax. So we're literally just hours before Jesus is about to get betrayed and tortured and murdered on the cross. And so we're at the very end. That, that kind of gives you uh, uh, an idea of where we are in Matthew, very near the end. And today we're going to look at Matthew 26. And in this passage, Jesus is going to institute, he's going to recreate this Passover meal. And now we call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. And we're going to see that um, today. We're, we're actually going to celebrate, like Peter said, we're going to celebrate communion uh, later on in the service but before we do, we're going to look back and see and study the inception of this meal, the Lord's Supper, uh, and the inception, the creation of it by Jesus just hours before his death. So we're going to read from uh, Matthew 26. It'll be up there on the screen. It's also uh, in the insert in your worship folder. Starting in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he, speaking of Jesus, reclined at a table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, or he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great plan. We thank you that despite a betrayal, your mission was still accomplished. We thank you that you've given us the Lord's Supper. You've given us communion to help us remember the greatest salvation, a salvation much greater than the Israelites experienced at Passover. So we pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning, convict us of sin, encourage us, remind us who we are if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, and that as we celebrate the table, as we celebrate communion later on in the service, that it would be even more beautiful and exciting and powerful and meaningful as we take it together uh, with our brothers and sisters here at Hiawatha. Pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so this morning our passage starts with the Passover event and then this feast in mind. So starting in verse 17 again, we read, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Then Jesus said to them, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. For, uh, prepared the Passover. So the Passover is this big celebration. We're going to look at it in more detail in just a second. So Jews from all over the nations, all over the world, have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so the disciples as well, with Jesus, are in Jerusalem. And they're asking Jesus, okay, where, where should we celebrate this Passover meal? Where should we go? How should we prepare and Jesus tells them, there's this man, you're going to go talk to him, 
You're going to make preparations at his house, and we're together going to have this Passover meal in this man's upper room. All right, so, so what, is, what is this Passover? What is this feast that the Jews have been religiously celebrating each year for, for over a thousand years? So Pastor Chris, just a few weeks ago, he talked in great detail about what this Passover event was, specifically talking about uh, this lamb that was slain and how Jesus, uh, his mission was to die on Passover, on this huge uh, Jewish celebration to show that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. So if, if you'd like to, to learn more about the Passover, or you missed that sermon, check it out online. There's a lot more um, details about what the Passover is and how Jesus is fulfilling it that we're not going to get a chance to get to today. But in today's passage, Jesus specifically did something unique with the Passover feast, with this Passover meal that we're going to look at. All right, so first let's just briefly talk about, so what is this holiday, this event, this celebration that Israel has been celebrating for 1,400, 1,500 years? They do it every single year called the Passover. So God's people in the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel, they're enslaved. They were being oppressed by Pharaoh in Egypt, and God sent, one, sent Moses, an Israelite, to go to Pharaoh to help rescue God's people out of the oppression in Egypt. But Pharaoh wasn't going to let them leave, so God sent plagues, ten plagues, to demonstrate to Pharaoh both that, that Moses was sent on God's behalf as well as to show Pharaoh God's power, God's power that was much greater than any of the other false gods that Egypt was worshiping. But plague after plague after plague happened, and Pharaoh's heart just got hardened. And finally God said, I'm going to send the 10th plague. I'm going to send this last plague, and it's going to work. And this plague would, uh, would be the death of the firstborn son, of livestock, of humans, of, of, of everyone, and not just Egypt, but anyone in the land of Egypt. And God gave his people a way to protect themselves. So we pick it up in Exodus 12. This is God speaking. He's saying, he says, uh, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over, and no plague will befall you destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God's judgment is going to pass over Egypt on this night, killing the firstborn son. But if he sees this blood, this blood of this innocent lamb that was painted above their doorpost, then God, God's judgment would pass over that household and they would be saved. They would be spared. Hence the name Passover. That's why this holiday is called Passover. So Chris unpacked how Jesus' mission was to die on Passover, to die on this holiday, on this celebration, to show everyone that he is this ultimate Passover lamb, that if people trust in him, if they trust in his blood being painted over their lives, that God's wrath will pass over them and they will be saved. And that Jesus would be not only a lamb that would save one household, but that he would be the ultimate lamb that would be slain to save all of humanity who would trust in the blood of that sacrificed lamb. So that describes this event, this event that happened, the, the Passover event. And out of, this event, out of this event, God institutes a yearly celebration to help forgetful Israel remember where they were and what they came out of. So we continue now in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So God, God knows his people. God knows humanity. He knows how forgetful we are. He knows how quickly, once we get out of the pain and the suffering and the oppression and whatever we're going through, once we get 
into some type of salvation or, or life's not as bad anymore, we forget so, so easily and so quickly. And how quickly we begin to complain and run to false gods once life starts getting tough again. So he tells his people to have this celebration, to have this feast, to have this feast as a memorial. This holiday will help them remember where they came from and what they were rescued out of and what they were rescued into. How their God saved them from persecution and slavery and oppression and death and how he rescued them out of that and said, I will be your God. I will give you a land. I will protect you. I will bring you prosperity if you make me your God and you worship me only. So this Passover meal that they're celebrating had for sure three, three elements in it. As, as history went on, uh, tradition, they added more and more elements, more and more pieces of food to it. But we know that uh, the Passover, for sure, this feast had for sure three elements. It had lamb that they would eat, which symbolized this, this, land, this lamb that was slain on the behalf of, of that household. They also had unleavened bread, which, like you'll see uh, when we take communion later today, unleavened bread is, is just bread that doesn't have yeast in it, that's, that's thin, that didn't have a chance to raise, which symbolized uh, how quickly the people of Israel had to flee Egypt after this last plague. And also during this Passover meal, there's four cups of wine that were drank. And as they were, they, as they were being drunk, the person leading the meal would uh, share how each, each cup symbolized the different promise God gave Israel as he was rescuing them out of Israel. And so Jesus now, as, as, as we saw, and we're going to look at this in more detail, he's now going to initiate, he's now going to recreate a new Passover meal a greater meal in which his people, the church, from then on, will eat not just once a year, but when they gather. A new meal that will symbolize a greater Passover and an even greater salvation. So we kind of, I made a chart, we're going to kind of compare the two, uh, the initial Passover meal and then the Lord's Supper, Jesus' fulfillment or Jesus' recreation of this Passover meal. So the initial Passover meal was a meal that was, it was, eaten that was full of symbolism that helped God's people remember that they were slaves in Egypt. God gave them salvation out of Egypt, whereas the Lord's Supper is a meal full of symbolism that reminds God's people of, of our salvation from not just slavery in a physical country, but salvation from sin and from death. The Passover meal had elements of unleavened bread and lamb and wine, whereas the Lord's Supper just has bread and wine. Some commentators pick up on this and they say, the only thing that's missing from the Lord's Supper that wasn't in the Passover is lamb. And it, and it, and it shows that Jesus Christ is our true Passover lamb. So we don't have a lamb in this feast right now. We, we realize Jesus is our Passover lamb. With the Passover meal, they're, they're remembering their salvation from slavery and death in Egypt. Whereas the Lord's Supper, the church remembers that we've been uh, saved from a spiritual and, and an eternal slavery and death. The Passover meal had a blemishless, a perfect, spotless lamb, and that lamb's blood is what saved people. Whereas now Jesus, who is perfect, innocent, holy, his blood is now what saves. The Passover meal was done once a year, whereas the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do it whenever you gather to remember me, not just a once a year thing. And finally, the Passover meal, very, very important meal, maybe the most important meal that the people of Israel took throughout the year. And the Lord's Supper is an even greater meal because it celebrates and points to and reminds us of an even greater salvation. All right, so now we've set the stage. That's what the Passover is, so that's what's going on. So Jesus and his disciples are in this upper room. They're having this Passover meal they're eating it. They're going through it. The person that's leading this meal is talking about how Israel was saved out of Egypt. So that's what's on their mind. They're thinking about salvation. They're thinking about God rescuing his people from an enemy. So that's, that's kind of setting the stage to where we are. So back to Matthew, verse 21. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at a table with the twelve, with the, the, the disciples. Verse 21. And as they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him 
one after another, is it, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man of whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, or Jesus said to him, You have said so. But can you just imagine what the disciples are thinking? They've been, they've been following Jesus. They've been living with Jesus for three plus years. And he's been telling them, I'm the Messiah. I'm this coming king who's coming in to history. God become man, coming, coming into history to become your king, your rescuer, your Messiah. I'm going to save Israel. And now Jesus recently has been talking about that he's going to have to die. And they're thinking, what king, what king dies? How are you going to save us? If you die, and now he's saying, Jesus the king is not only going to have to die, but he's going to be betrayed. And not be betrayed by Jesus' physical enemies, but he's going to be stabbed in the back by one of Jesus' disciples. One of, of Jesus' closest friends that has spent years and years with Jesus. And we find out that this man, this man, this disciple, Apparent disciple that's going to betray Jesus is uh, the disciple Judas. Jesus and Judas are very close together, so I might mix them up. I caught myself first sermon, so maybe uh, Dan, if I say Jesus instead of Judas or vice versa, give me a little sign and I'll uh, make sure to fix that. So anyway, who is this man, Judas? This man who betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot, who's maybe the most infamous man in human history the man who betrayed God with a kiss. First of all, like I said, Jesus was one of, one of Judas, was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He spent years and years, three plus years following Jesus, hearing all of his teachings, seeing his healings, seeing his miracles. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead to breathe life into dead corpses that had been dead for days. He saw God in human flesh face to face. And not only that, but Judas was used by Jesus to preach that the kingdom was coming. Jesus used Jesus to actually do miracles, to actually heal people, to actually cast out demons. And yet, despite his apparent intimacy and his apparent devotion to Jesus, Judas never truly believed when Jesus says that one of his disciples is going to betray him, look how the disciples respond. One after another, they say, Is it I, Lord? Is it I? They call him Lord. They acknowledge that Jesus is the master of their life. He's the Lord of their life. They've bowed the knee, the proverbial knee to him, saying, You are my master. You are my Lord. I know you are God. And then look how Judas responds. He responds, is it I, rabbi? Rabbi just meaning teacher. Judas didn't trust in Jesus. He didn't believe that he was God, and he didn't call Jesus Lord. And Matthew picks up on that. In fact, throughout all of the New Testament, we have no recorded uh, instance in the Bible where Judas ever calls Jesus his Lord. And I think the, the gospel writers are trying to get at that, to try, try to show us that. So again, Despite his apparent intimacy with Jesus, his apparent devotion to Jesus, Judas never truly believed. And not only that, but the gospel writers explain in more detail, they help us figure this out, that Jesus, sorry, that Judas really loved money. And he loved money more than Jesus. Last week we looked at a passage that comes right before ours. This week, where this woman comes to Jesus and he anoints him with oil, preparing him for his coming burial. And this oil is ridiculously expensive. This oil is worth a year's wages. This oil is worth $50,000, $70,000, and she pours it out on Jesus. Another one of the disciples in, in his gospel, he writes about how Judas responds to this instance. In John 12, we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii or a year's wages? 
and given to the poor. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Also last week we saw that Judas, after this, he goes to the chief priests and he betrays Jesus, not for power, not for political position, but he betrays Jesus for money, for 30 pieces of silver. We read last week, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas loved what being a disciple got him. Access to the money bag. He wanted to associate with Jesus, but not to make him his Lord. He could fool people for a while, but eventually his true nature was made public. And he rejected Jesus. He betrayed Jesus to be tortured and murdered. Hiawatha Church, this is why we gather weekly. This is why we preach the gospel every single week. This is why who's ever up here preaching might sound like a broken record, saying the same gospel every single week. This is why we need to gather in smaller groups and gospel-centered community. This is why we need to know each other deeply and be known by others. This is why we confess our sin to each other and our doubts and our questions, and we don't hide our sin because Judas spent three-plus years with Jesus face-to-face, saw everything Jesus did, heard everything Jesus taught and preached, yet still was more enticed by money. Money was more beautiful to him than Jesus Christ. That's a warning to us and a reminder of why we gather weekly, why we gather in smaller groups with friends and in community groups and with family. This is why we preach the gospel every single week, because we are forgetful people. We're forgetful people. So I pray for us, for myself, that we as a church would ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of when we're, when we're uh, falling into this, when we're getting bored with hearing the gospel, when we're starting to get apathetic, when we're starting to not care about being around Christian brothers and sisters. So Judas, betraying Jesus in this passage, gives us some great warnings. First thing is, don't think that gathering together with other believers on a Sunday is what makes you a Christian. Don't think that walking through these doors on a Sunday morning, getting together with other Christians, singing some songs, hearing some preaching, talking to some people, that is not what makes you a Christian. Just like Judas following Jesus around and looking like a disciple does not make him a true disciple. Don't think that just because you call yourself a Christian or a disciple of Christ, another word for that, that you truly are. Just like Judas, who called himself a disciple, a follower of Christ, a Christian, his heart exposed that he really never truly was one. Associating with God's people doesn't make you a Christian. It comes out of being a Christian. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Holy Spirit lives in you. It changes your heart. It gets you excited to gather with God's people and to remember what Jesus did on your behalf. And so it comes naturally out of a changed heart. It comes naturally out of a Christian. But just associating with Christians doesn't make you one. I have a friend who uh, lives in the same uh, apartment complex as four Minnesota Wild players. And he hangs out with them, he gets dinner with them, he gets drinks with them sometimes. Just like him hanging out with four Minnesota Wild does not make him a professional hockey player. Only associating with other Christians does not make you a Christian, just like it didn't with Judas. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he writes about the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus in contrast to only associating with God's people. He writes, The mealness of the Lord's Supper, so the Lord's Supper being an actual meal, not just a ritual. The mealness of the Lord's Supper is a reminder that no one, no one can appropriate the benefits of Jesus' death unless he calls them into a personal relationship with him. 
To share a meal with someone, particularly in Jesus' place and time, is to have a relationship. So Jesus is saying that we need a personal relationship with him if all the benefits of his perfect substitutionary sacrificial suffering are to come to us. One of Jesus' disciples, John, after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, he, he becomes a leader of the church, and he writes to the church in one of his letters. In 1 John, he reminds them, there's going to be people like Judas in your church. He reminds them that there's going to be people that, that are, are attracted to, to what they can get out of being around Christians, whether it's like Judas with the money bag or maybe they just like hanging out with, with Christians because they, uh, they get served by people, they get friendships, they maybe are, are around really generous people and they like receiving from that. So John's writing back to the church, reminding them there's going to be people like Judas who are never who are going to leave you and thus prove that they never really were believers. They never really were a part of you. He writes, 1 John 2, They went out from us, so these people who weren't believers, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, they left, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So basically he's saying, by leaving, by Judas betraying Jesus, by people eventually leaving the church, there will be people like that that prove that they never really truly believed. So right now we're kind of at a down in the story. It's kind of depressing. One of Jesus' own followers, one of his own disciples, is now going to not just have some doubts, but he's actually going to betray Jesus. He's going to stab Jesus almost literally in the back seems like Jesus' great plan is ruined, right? But take heart. Don't lose hope here. Again, just like we've been seeing all throughout Matthew, and especially the past few weeks, God is still in control. Not even the betrayal of one of Jesus' best friends can mess up God's plan. God uses the betrayal of the only truly innocent man ever. He uses the betrayal of Jesus to bring about the greatest news this world has ever heard, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to our God through the cross. All right, back to Matthew. Now, let, now let's see what Jesus does with this Passover meal. So we, we know what's going on. They're having a Passover meal. During the beginning of the Passover meal, he reminds or he tells his people, his disciples, I am going to die, and one of you is going to be the one who betrays me. And let's, let's see how Jesus continues with this Passover meal. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So this bread no longer means, no longer symbolizes Israel getting out of Egypt quick because they didn't have any time. So there's no yeast in the bread, and it's not, it's big, it's it's. It's instead thin and flat. It doesn't mean that anymore. This bread now symbolizes, just like I'm breaking it right now, he's saying it symbolizes that my body is going to be broken as this Passover lamb. Verse 27, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, Tim Keller writes about this. He says, with these simple gestures of holding up the bread and the wine, with these simple words, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is saying that all the earlier deliverances, all the earlier sacrifices, the lambs at Passover, all those things were pointing ahead to himself. Just as the Passover was observed at night. Listen to this. This is so cool. Just as the Passover was observed the night before God redeemed Israel from slavery through the blood of a lamb, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeems the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. Just like we saw in the chart, Jesus is instituting a new, a greater Passover and Passover meal. 
Because a better Passover is coming. A better salvation is coming. Not one that just removes them from physical slavery and physical oppression, but one that is eternal. Not just a one-time freedom, but an eternal freedom. Not just for a specific group of people, not just for the Israelites, but it's now available to the entire world. So Jesus blesses the bread, thanking God the Father for providing it, showing it that this is his plan, as well as acknowledging that, that it comes from him. And then he tells his disciples what this now symbolizes. The broken bread symbolizes his broken body. The wine now symbolizes his blood that's going to be poured out, just like that lamb's was back in Exodus. Judas's betrayal, it won't ruin God's plan of salvation. In fact, like I said before, he's going to use this worst, this worst act in history to bring about the greatest good ever. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, Jesus clearly describes to his disciples why he wants them to eat this. He says, you're not going to eat this new meal, this new Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. You're not just going to eat it once a year, but you're going to eat it whenever you gather. Eat it often in remembrance of me, he says. That's why we have on our table here where we serve communion, where we serve the Lord's table, it says, do this in remembrance of me. So as we're doing this, we're not just doing this because good Christians do it or because it's just something rote or it's a ritual or it's a habit. We do it to remember what Jesus did. So just like this old Passover meal was to remind the Jews of God's salvation, this new Passover meal Jesus creates is to remind Jesus' church of an even greater salvation is coming. Just like the lamb, the wine, the unleavened bread pointed to some meaning of this Passover, the cup and the wine now symbolize Jesus' shed blood broken body that bring about the greatest Passover of sin ever. But you still might be thinking, okay, I understand that, but why, why did Jesus have to die? Why did, why did he have to shed his blood? I understand this, this symbolism stuff, but, but why did he have to die in order to bring us this ultimate spiritual type of self, salvation? Jesus answers this when he, when he initiates the Lord's Supper in, in verse 28. He says, or, and, and as he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So just like in this original Passover, the blood of an innocent, perfect, spotless lamb needed to be used as a substitute to, to, to save the Israelites, it's now the blood of a perfect, innocent, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, that is a substitute for us. The author of the book of Hebrews, so this is, this is uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, looks back at what happened in the Old Testament, and he describes how under the law, the only way that people could get close to God, could kind of know God, could get their sins forgiven, was through a sacrifice, through killing an innocent animal. In Hebrews, the author writes, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Sin can't be forgiven unless something dies. But here we see Jesus, he's ushering a new covenant, a new way to relate to God. No longer do you have to go to the temple and kill an animal in order to be reunited with God. But now through Christ, we can come back to God. He's the new lamb, the new sacrifice. Before God, apart from Christ, the Bible describes that we were not just far off from God, which we were. We were also God's enemies. We rebelled against God with our first father, Adam. And the only way that we could ever come close to God, even just get a, a hint of who he was or to know him, was through animal sacrifice, through, through the blood being shed. We couldn't truly know our creator. We couldn't come near him. We were slaves to our sin and to death. But Hebrew 9 continues. But just as it is, he, speaking of Jesus, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin. So one sacrifice has happened that's put away sin for all ages 
And how has he done this? How has Jesus put away sin? By the sacrifice of himself. So now that our sin has been paid for and covered once and for all, humanity can finally return to their God, to their creator. Can finally return to having unity and communion and relationship with God if we trust in our new Passover lamb. Just like the Israelites trusted in that lamb that they killed for their salvation. Ephesians 2 writes, But now in Christ Jesus, speaking to the church, if you're in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far away from God, have now been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. So the Lord's Supper, it has other names. Here at Hiawatha, we call it communion. And the reason Christians have called the Lord's, the Lord's Supper communion is because now through Jesus' death on the cross, we now finally can have communion with God. We can finally have relationship with God. We can know him. We can have unity with him. We can be close with him. And not just him, but with his body, with the church, with our brothers and sisters here at Hiawatha. Even though we might be completely different, even though we might be even close to political enemies or, or completely different in every single way, because of the cross, we now have communion with each other. So today as we celebrate communion, and just like the church has throughout history, they, when they gather, they celebrate communion. Not, not usually alone, individually, by themselves in their homes. But they do it when we gather together to show, again in symbol, that we now have communion with each other. And we'll see that in just a few minutes as we have communion together. As a church, we'll see people coming down the aisle and taking the bread and the wine. And as you see that, remember that you have been saved into a community. You now have communion with these brothers and sisters here if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Other branches of the church call uh, the Lord's Supper, they call it the Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving. So that's also a reminder to us that as we take communion, it needs to be a time of thanksgiving, of thanking God for what he has done. All right, so, so how, does, how does the Lord's Supper, how does communion look at Hiawatha? Some of you are brand new today. Some of you have been here a few times and haven't seen us do uh, communion. Or maybe you've been at Hiawatha for forever and you've seen us do communion, but you don't know exactly why. Why do we do it a certain way? What's the point in X, Y, and Z? So we're, we're going to talk about that very briefly. First of all, so this is from our, our website and our church's constitution. What does Hiawatha believe about communion? We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has committed uh, two ordinances to the local church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ for commemoration of his death. We believe that these two ordinances should be observed and administered until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so if, if you notice, the, the table is right here up front. Uh, once a week, we have it up here in front. We rearrange the entire service in order to celebrate communion together. But most weeks, it's right over here on the side. And we invite you here at Hiawatha anytime during any of the songs throughout the service or before or after the service to come up to, to the table and partake, to, to break off the bread, to have a cup of grape juice or wine, and uh, to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do it with, with your spouse, with some friends, with your family, or by yourself, however you'd like to do it. And we, we always have it available up here. There's also some scripture and some directions here on this, uh, this little picture frame that you can also read um, as well. But once a month, what we like to do is we like to rearrange our entire service, which is what we did today. We usually do this on the first Sunday of the month, and we have the sermon first, and then we end with taking the Lord's Supper together uh, during worship. And the reason that we do that is because uh, initially when we first started Hiawatha, we didn't want communion to just become rote. We didn't want it to become a chore or something we do, a ritual that we don't really know why we're doing it or that it loses some of its meaning. And so we wanted once a month to really focus on it, to rearrange our whole service around it, to, to take communion together as a church. And so we'll always have it available every Sunday, but once a month we'll have it together uh, as a whole church. And so in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite the band to come up and start playing 
our, our worship set. And anytime during those songs, um, since it's a communion Sunday, uh, we'll invite you to come down the center aisle, break off a piece of bread, pour a glass of either uh, grape juice or wine, and uh, remember, give thanks for what uh, God has done. You can uh, take it up front in one of the front pews. You can go back to where you're sitting. It's up to you. There'll also be people standing up front, and we, uh, they're here to, to pray with you. We'd love to pray for everyone uh, here this morning that would like prayer. You can just come up and tap us and, and say, I'd like a, a general prayer, a general blessing, or if you have any specific requests, you can ask us. And we, would, we would love to pray for, for everyone uh, each, week, or each time we have uh, communion together as a church. And just one, one, one uh, side note, we also uh, have both grape juice and uh, wine. So uh, the reason for that, just so you know, is for, for parents who maybe want their child to, to not have wine or something, or for people's consciences who would rather have grape juice instead of alcohol. We have both of those available as well. All right, so to summarize now, before we, we actually get a chance to, to partake in the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, it's for believers. Jesus gave it to his church, to his true followers, and in it we are reminded of what Jesus did for us. His body was broken, his blood was poured out on our behalf. We're, we are reminded of the communion that we now have with God. We're no longer far off, we're no longer his enemies, but we also have communion now with the church, with his body here. And now through communion we regularly focus because we're such a forgetful people. We regularly focus on the saving work of Jesus Christ, and we thank him for it, because we, we forget so easily. And here at Highlight the Church, communion, it's, it's one of the unique aspects of our Sunday morning gathering. And this is why. For nearly the whole morning, uh, being welcomed, coming in, having coffee, the casualness of our services, the, the, the greeting, the talking with people, the singing, the sermon, all that stuff, uh, we want everyone to be able to participate and feel that and to, and to enjoy that. It's both for believers and people who don't quite believe yet. Experiencing the same thing at the same time. And we love it. We, we want it that way. We create our service in a way that allows for that to happen. We want people here, and we have it every single week, people here who are just checking out Christianity, who don't know much about Jesus or about the Bible, but they're interested and they're asking questions. They have doubts. They don't know everything. And that's okay. We want visitors. We want people just checking Jesus out. We want them to feel welcomed. We want them to feel wanted. We want them to feel pursued. And if that's you, we hope you feel that way. Because we really do, we do really want to pursue you. We, we love you. We're glad that you are here. We want you to even feel like a part of our community like a part of the family here at Hiawatha Church. But there's a few unique instances where that's not the case. And communion is one of them. Mainly because Jesus says communion is just supposed to be for my followers, my true followers, people who have put all their trust and faith in me. And so we ask that only those who have trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins to be the ones who take communion. The Bible speaks of this. Jesus speaks of this, about this being the case, and warns against people taking communion in an unworthy manner, making a mockery of Jesus' death. But communion is for Christians only. So if, if you're not a Christian today, again, welcome. We're glad you're here. We want you here. We're happy that you're here. We love you. We seriously are glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcomed and a part of our community and so we invite you today to put your trust in Jesus Christ, a Passover lamb that died on your behalf, that now washed all your sins away, that gives you uh, access back to God the Father, who redeems you. Have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as Tim Keller described it, and come take communion for maybe the very first time. Again, we want you to feel close to Jesus. We want you to feel close to Jesus' people. But just like we saw in today's passage, being close to Jesus' people, associating with the church, with other Christians, it's not enough. 
not enough. You're in a great place, but it's, it, but it's not enough. So again, this is why we only ask Christians to take communion. Because it's for those people who are remembering Jesus' death on their behalf. And we don't, just like Jesus didn't, we don't want to give anyone false hope that they're okay with God just because they're hanging out with Hiawatha people or just because they attend a church on a Sunday morning. It's a great start. We want you there. But just like we saw in today's passage, it's not enough. So we invite you again. If you're brand new today, if you don't know Jesus, you can. You can know Jesus. Put your trust in him and his substitute, what he did on your behalf on the cross. If you are a believer today, three things before I invite you to come take communion. Remember, it's called communion. Remember, as you're taking communion, you now have, through Christ, a relationship with your creator. And you have communion now with his people. It's a mystical, spiritual, amazing thing. People that have nothing in common, that apart from Christ, would never talk to each other, now have communion, now have brother and sisterhood. That's why the church is called a family, now through Christ. Second thing, remember that communion is also called the Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving. So as you come, come with a thankful heart. Thank God for his great plan. Thank Jesus for his great sacrifice. As you're drinking the wine, thank God for his spilled blood and his broken body as you eat the bread. And finally, for everyone, believe. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins for the first time, for the millionth time. And for you, if today it's the millionth time, don't think it's any less important. Remember Judas's example. Remember someone who is so, so close to Jesus, who looked at Jesus in the eye, who had meals with Jesus, who slept near Jesus, who lived with Jesus, who saw everything he did and heard everything he taught, but still didn't believe. So believe today, again, for the millionth time or for the first time. All right, I'm going to pray and invite the band to come on up. Once the band starts playing, uh, anytime during those four songs, come down the center of the aisle. Uh, if you're a believer, feel free to break off some bread and either pour uh, wine or grape juice. Again, take it up here front, bring it back to your seat, whatever you'd like. And there'll be people up front that will, uh, would love to pray with you. So just come, tap us on the arm, and um, if it's just a general blessing you'd like or if there's any specific prayer requests. So let's celebrate Jesus' death on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of salvation. You're not a God that leaves us in captivity. You're not a God that leaves us in oppression, in slavery, left to, left to die. But you are a God of salvation. You are a God that rescues, a God that redeems. And we thank you for this new Passover meal, that there's a greater salvation than the one that the Israelites experienced so we pray that we would, as, as we take communion, as we take your, your supper, we pray that it would be more real to us, that the, the symbolism would be deeper and more beautiful and greater, that we would truly be people of great thanksgiving as we take communion and people who realize the, the, the great gift that it is that we can finally have communion with you and with your people. We pray this all in your powerful, holy, perfect name, Jesus. Amen.